0: Hey, this is Mark. One of the recurring themes on this podcast is what I would describe as the ups and downs of farmers' brand reputation. Remember how the pandemic proved to be a boon to the corporate reputations of drug makers? Well, the COVID halo, if you could call it that, didn't last long. Last week's interview with Moderna's Chief Brand Officer, Kate Cronin, was a good reminder of the ephemeral nature of those levels. In an interview with my colleague Jack O'Brien, Cronin said the fuzzy feeling seemed to have largely worn off by the time she joined the biotech in mid-2021. And a study earlier this year noted a 2% decline in brand value across the industry. But the mercury swings both ways on this. And as proof, we're bringing you another interview with a pharma brand chief. Anthony Farina is chief communications and brand officer over at Australian Biotech CSL. CSL was ranked fastest growing pharma brand despite the natural decline of pharma following the pandemic. This week on the podcast, Anthony takes us inside CSL's reputation management function as we explore the biotech's brand story and get his take on some of the biggest risks to corporate reputation, as well as his tips for pharma communicators. And Lesha's here with a health policy update. Hey, Lesha.
1: Hey, Mark. Today, I'll discuss a new piece of legislation introduced in the Senate Health Committee last week that would invest in primary health care, even as the government heads towards a shutdown.
2: And, Jack, what's on tap for this week's trend segment? This week, we're discussing the latest update on Bruce Willis's dementia, the dangers of TikTok's mouth taping trend, and a poker player who lied about having terminal cancer to raise money to compete at the World Series of Poker.
0: I'm Mark Iskowitz, editor at large, and welcome to the MMM Podcast, medical marketing media's show about healthcare marketing writ large. This is Mark Iskowitz, editor at large for MMM, and I'm very pleased to be joined here by Anthony Farina, who's chief communications and brand officer for CSL Bearing. Uh, Anthony leads the strategic communications, brand, and reputation management function there. Anthony, welcome to the MMM podcast.
3: Mark, it's a pleasure. Thanks for uh, having me on today.
0: Absolutely. So uh, I wanted to just start off by asking you, uh, this is a time when we're seeing the current uh, macroeconomic headwinds and the natural decline and the strength of pharma following the pandemic. Mm. As such, we're seeing widespread declines in brand value across the industry. But CSL was named the fastest growing brand by brand value in a recent ranking. So I was hoping you could tell us about the brand value story. You know, how did you solidify the brand purpose? Sure. Well,
3: it didn't happen overnight. Let's put it this way. Uh, We started this back in uh, 2014 when there was no global uh, communications brand function for CSL, despite it being one of the largest uh, biotechs uh, in the world. And so we had this opportunity to build it from the ground up. And these opportunities only come around a handful of times. And so we wanted to be a a couple things. One, we wanted to be authentic really be true to our ourselves and our patients. We didn't want to be something that you know we just weren't. Uh, secondly, we wanted to be focused. And so CSL has uh, three business units. One is CSL-Bearing focused around rare and serious diseases. CSL-Sakaris is uh, one of the largest uh, providers of flu vaccines in the world with a differentiated uh, product portfolio that really uh, where innovation's rewarded. And now we have CSL-V4, amongst the leaders in nephrology and, and iron as as well. And so we really want to be focused on those three areas uh, as, as well. And so we built this thing from the ground up. We wanted to be a publishing powerhouse, especially with the number of journalists or the dwindling number of journalists around the world over the last 10 years. And so we really focus more on the owns, some paid, but EARN was probably more of a sort of secondary uh, for us. And then we wanted to be digitally centric. And, you know, I think a lot of large biopharma companies have struggled in the past of trying to how do you work in your digital capabilities when they've been operating the traditional way. And so we really had the benefit of starting something from the ground up and really look at it in a what I would say a different way than maybe traditional communication and marketing uh, groups have have sort of been organized over the years. And, you know, look, no one's declaring victory, but, you know, it's the work has paid off over the years. Very steady uh, drumbeat, growth, growth, growth. And it's very much aligned with our approach at CSL, where we really try to drive sustainable growth. We're not in it for the, the short term. Here's a company that's been around for well over a hundred years. Uh, and we're always about that sustainability, that sustainable growth going forward. And I think the way we have developed our brand over that time really represents that. And and we were just delighted uh, to be recognized with the fastest growing brands in Biopharma in the last 12 months. And there's a lot of reasons for that. And I'm sur- I'm sure we'll get into that in a little bit, Mark. But the other thing is we also have seen that brand growth of 80 percent since 2020. As well. And so, again, it's not a, a quick hit, a snapshot or so. And so, you know, we're, we're really the trajectory is going off very, very nicely.
0: Yeah. I mean, you were recognized uh, for the immunoglobulin portfolio, uh, the nearly $12 billion acquisition of I4 Pharma, as you, as you mentioned, um, and the launch of hemgenics, the hemophilia B gene therapy. So some really good um, talking points there. And you mentioned a number of things that you focused on the authenticity, you know, those three business units and kind of like uniting them uh, earned versus paid being digitally centric. What would you, said you say that you spent the most time doing uh, in terms of that, you know, refining and honing of the brand focus?
3: Sure. It's, it's really is to get everyone focused on the brands. And so when you have a team, global team, People are, you know, trying to provide support to the business, trying to support, um, you know, other initiatives. It's really important to continue to drive the brand for the company. And sometimes you feel like you're Don Quixote, you know, fighting windmills, especially since we're still an embryonic um, brand, if you really think about it. When we introduced our first brand positioning uh, eight years ago or so, and so pretty much still a lot of work. But, it's, again, driving it and reminding the team, reminding our 32,000 employees around the importance of the brand as, as, as well. So we've made a lot of progress, but we still have a, a long ways to go for sure. And I'm really, really delighted now that we did our rebrands about a year ago or or so. I really do believe the best is yet to come, uh, especially coming together as one. Uh, one CSL brand that we're really trying to drive. And and the the business units are just performing so well. And that's always helpful for our brands. You know, it, mm-hmm. we sometimes get caught up into, you know, the, you know, sort of the conceptual kind of things. But when a company is performing, so does the brands. And, you know, it's really, really, uh, we're very fortunate to to work and support a company that's really, delivering on his promise really of of performance it makes everything else really fall into place very nicely
0: sure yeah and um you know you, you mentioned the the rebrand that took place about a year ago where you unified the business units that was last august i believe mm-hmm. and um but uh you know Brand reputation is, is a tricky thing. You know, just look at uh, what happened during the pandemic where mm-hmm. pharma was really, really recognized as the way out of the pandemic. And, and then turns out uh, the vaccines, you know, um, uh, kind of delivered in that in that regard. But how quickly how fickle uh, reputation has proved uh, in, in the months since. And we know that even even when brands take a, a deliberate attempt at, at building their, their brand value and their brand story, things can go awry. So what do you think is the biggest risk uh, these days to brand reputation and brand value? Sure.
3: So, you know, as we all know, the brand is the promise and how you live up to that promise is how the reputation is formed and, and those kind of things. You know, uh, a couple of challenges that we live, uh, we live in a soundbite world uh, where communications is sometimes happens in 140 characters or less. And so, the volatility and the quickness and the agility and the speed of information is so important. And so, we really need to be able to manage our reputation based on the speed, based on the agility, and those kind of things. And, you know, there's always a time, it just, you know, when you have a company, a global company, there's always ups and downs, those kind of things and it always goes back to driving the brand because the reputation will go up and down you'll have a bad news story something will happen it'll be a cycle some kind of things going on around the world there's a big world 24 7 we're living in it, it in it now but the best thing about managing the brands or uh, managing reputation is investing back into the brand That's that's putting that equity back in the bank if you will because Things happen, and we're living in this 24-7, 140-character or less world. And um, I'm just really delighted that at CSL we we are mindful of that, in fact, we have a, a, a reputation, a body of work that we have going on right now. It would have been really easy for us to say, wow, we were just named the fastest-growing brand in biopharma and not do anything about it, and we're actually out there doing a – Really, like a two-three-year body of work that we just started um, around our reputation, and, and really excited to see the
0: results of that. we'll we'll talk about that in a bit. I also wanted to get into um, some of your your recommendations, your tips for other marketers uh, who, are looking across the industry, uh, have similar roles. Um, you know, you're you're accountable, obviously, for building, protecting, and defending CSL's brand and reputation with key stakeholders and influencers. What, what kind of tips do you have for your counterparts at other companies?
3: Sure. So a, a couple of things. One, you're only as good as your people. And, you know, when we started this thing a couple of years ago, there was a handful of people in Australia. They weren't even a team, a handful of people in the U.S. and a handful of people in Europe. And so what we were able to do is really build what I would say a very diverse team. And so I think sometimes in biopharma, Teams get caught up by saying, well, you need to have biopharma experience to to work in this in this area. And so, you know, maybe uh, maybe we've sort of have challenged that sort of mindset. And so we have people from different industries, uh, consumer food industries. We have a number of former journalists uh, as as well, industrials as well. Certainly, we have a number of people with biopharma experience, too. But I think that diversity really brings a lot Different perspectives, different ideas. We always talk about no idea is a bad one. You know, we'll try. I think we're progressive. We'll try some things, and if it's not working, we we stop it and move on to something else. And so we really challenge the team to really, you know, bring their best selves. You know, twenty four seven, and 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 really lean in to be a part of it because. we're still embryonic and we're still growing as a, as a team, but that diversity of talent is has been really critical uh, for us. The other is um, what I mentioned a little bit earlier, you know, be authentic. If you're making widgets, then be the best widget maker you are and position that company that way. I've seen over the last probably, probably like the last five or six years, two areas, where you just sort of shake your head sometimes. One is around purpose. And in the biopharma industry, we are a purpose industry. There's no doubt about it, there's no question. But then when you look around, you really start to say, really, is that really? Are you being true to yourself? Are you being authentic and purposeful and those kind of things? And you see some other campaigns just just shake your head sometimes. The other, I would say, is ESG and sustainability. For, what, decades, a lot of companies have, you know, really been driving sustainability. And I think in biopharma, the the questions around from investors and analysts asking around, you know, what are you doing ESG and sustainability wise has sort of caused this um, what I would say this um, scurrying around of making commitments. Uh, and you saw this probably a couple years ago where everyone just went out and did a, you know, 2050 carbon neutral and all those kind of things. Well, I don't know who's going to be around in 2050. I'm not so sure I will be. But, um <laughs> It's really important to, again, be authentic. And so we, of course, put together our sustainability strategy and we made our commitments, but we made the commitments, not just to scurry and do it and check the box. It's aligned with our business strategy, which is very unusual. Uh, We've made environmental target commitments aligned with our 2030 business strategy to 2030. And so you know, I, I think it's those kind of things where take a step back, be thoughtful in what you're doing and don't just rush the judgment and sort of be out there. Um, you kind of see that uh, over time. But those are the two areas that I would sort of say interesting over the last five years or so.
0: Sure, and, and the diversity of talent, um, you know, is, is a great one. Uh, obviously, you are responsible for about seventy uh, staffers around the world, and, and you created CSL's first global communications and brand function. So, um, you know, interesting to hear you talk about the importance of a diverse team um, and being very deliberate um, and staying true to the brand uh, authenticity uh, with with the ESG um, goals there as well. Um, CSL uh, has its roots uh, in Australia, right? Mm -hmm. So Australian pharma company were founded on plasma derived therapies. You built up the biotech platform and Hemgenics was your first gene therapy approval last year, as we we mentioned. It's a sign of strength in your R&D. Uh, the pricing conversation being a delicate one, though, can you talk about you know, how you put together your kind of top line messaging strategy around hemgenics pricing? Because at three and a half million dollars that it was was the uh, and I think remains the, the most expensive drug in the world.
3: Yeah, sure. So first and foremost, you know, this is just great news for patients with hemophilia B R- transformational. Innovative and and we're a leader in this space in bleeding disorders, immune deficiencies, and those kind of things. So we were absolutely delighted to serve patients uh, with this really transformational uh, therapy. And you know who would have thought little CSL, little CSL would bring uh, a therapy like this to to the world. And so I know the, the listeners here really understand that gene therapy represents really a relatively new way to treat patients with genetic diseases it's creating paradigm shift in in payment and so what hemgenics does is it offers uh, the potential of savings over time when you think about it um, compared to the current cost of treating patients Uh, and that's been confirmed by icer uh, as well and so the payer community has responded very positively uh, to the value proposition offered by Ingenics. Um And we've seen that reflected in the policies that have been uh, written. Um, for example, a large majority of payers uh, uh, covering uh, a large majority of the U.S. population have established um, medical policies covering himgenics, And so their early days were delighted with the uh, initial patients have been dosed. Payer community has been very uh, receptive, but going back to your point Mark around the pricing messaging, like I said, a little bit early, we live in a soundbite world and you know, the communications of 140 characters or less, that's the reality of the world. So what we learned was it's so important to have Early and often engagement with various stakeholders, whether that's patient uh, groups, patient advocacy groups, uh, HCPs, payers, and have those meaningful conversations. And we're really pleased with how things are progressing going forward. And again, uh, transformational. And you know, who would have thought the good old CSL would have brought uh, such a such a transformational uh, therapy to the world? But you know, when you look at our pipeline, we have a number of other exciting uh, opportunities. Our pipeline has never been more robust. And if, if your listeners pay attention to us over the next year or so, there's some really, really exciting projects that we have uh, coming out that are in late stages
0: yeah it's, it's Im- impressive to hear um, and as you mentioned uh, the price tag while it's steep up front um, if it does uh, prevent uh, patients from uh, having to dish out over time for chronic therapy um, you know then it actually uh, becomes reasonable and some of the payer contacts and and the and the financial analysts uh, that I read uh, felt that the price was reasonable mm-hmm. uh, and as you mentioned, ICER, the frequently cited figure that they came out with was was slightly slightly lower but it's incrementally uh, higher, the, the final price tag. Uh, but Wall Street analysts seem to seem to feel as well justified, you know, given everything you said. So, you know, if I might add one other thing that I think, um, you know, from, from our vantage point makes CSL unique is, is the quality of staying in your lane. I mean, I remember mm. there was, when we wrote, we wrote about, uh, my, my colleague interviewed the former CEO, Paul Perot, uh, several years ago, he talked about another one of the company's pipeline products, that was developed under its own roof, but it was an oncology product and uh, it was uh, sold off to Janssen. And Paul's comment at the time was we're not, we're not an oncology company. You know, we wouldn't have been a good parent for that. So staying in your lane, you know, which, which is your roots as, as a blood plasma company. uh, And now coming out with a gene therapy for hemophilia, certainly seems to make sense.
3: Yeah. And it's, you know, really understanding your strengths, understanding who you are, be comfortable in your own skin. Now, look, right now we have a number of of medicines that we're working on that are not necessarily plasma derived and so plasma will always be important for us but there's so many recombinants that we are looking at now we like to think about our approach to r d is disrupting ourselves and so i'll give you an example adelvion right now is the the clear market leader uh, for us there and now we have hemgenics and so we're really disrupting ourselves uh, we have uh, some terrific flu vaccines, but we're differentiating and providing more cell-based there. That's more sustainable and it has, um, you know, better results there as as well. So, you know, to be a leader, you have to behave like one. And we've been doing this for a long time. We're very familiar with it. And like I said, wait till you see what else is coming out in the in the pipelines. Very very exciting. It's it, it's hard not to get excited.
0: Really really. <laughs> Sounds like a, a very Jack Welch type of quality, you know. You, you can't cannibalize your own products yes. for the sake of innovation, you know. Exactly. Um,
3: Look, at the end of the day, it's all about bettering patients. We have to all remember this. It's all about improving the quality of lives for our patients, and in many instances, saving their lives. Because many of the medicines we have are not discretionary; they're life-saving medicines. And right. And right. so, you know, when you can improve patients' lives, that's what we're all in this for.
0: Sure. How how was the CEO transition? You know, talking about the the transition from Paul Perot over to Paul McKenzie, uh, Mr. McKenzie, uh, obviously took over uh, this past March. It was a Paul to Paul transition, but talk about that a little bit.
3: (laughs) Sure. You know, look, you know, you do these these things after a while you go through a number of CEO transitions and, you know, I've been involved with some that really didn't transition very well. Uh, I can tell you this one, I've been in this business for 35 years. This is without a doubt, the most seamless CEO transition to be involved with. Um, I think it was helpful that Paul McKenzie was with CSL for four years or so and and really understands the business because the business we're in is very complex. When you start working in the plasma centers, there's a long lead time for many of our products, nine months to 12 months or so. And I can tell you uh, that the, the handover has just been wonderful. Both terrific leaders, different, different styles, different ways. Uh, funny little story there. First time I met Paul McKenzie was four years ago when he joined CSL. And he and I were looking at each other and he said, you look familiar. I said, you look familiar too. Started talking and lo and behold, 10 years earlier, we're refereeing swim meets at national levels in Atlanta, Georgia, <laughs> Greensboro, North Carolina, Indianapolis, where we are actually refereeing uh, meets together. So we go way back. Uh, great guy, loves, really has brings a lot of passion and very, very much uh, a great leader.
0: Great, great. I know you spent 13 years at, at DuPont as well as, as, mm-hmm. as their chief public affairs and communications officer. So you you go back um, in, in, the, in the chemical industry as well before you joined CSL. Um, so I'm, I'm sure you know a lot of people uh, from both roles. But the um, you know, want to uh, leave our, our uh, listeners with some future looking commentary. Um, you know, the. Um, Brand finance report was just one of the reputation indicators. I know you've had a lot of success through the past year, but talk about what's next for uh, on, on the reputation front. You know, you mentioned uh, you've got some things planned. Um, what, what kind of uh, marketing and communications um, campaigns do you have planned for the next six to 12 months?
3: Sure. So, you know, I think a lot of people right now are really excited around AI and really to get an understanding of how that all sort of works there. We now have the V4 uh, business unit well integrated into the company. Now we did the rebranding last year as well. So like the fundamentals are all in place there for us to really take off going out there. And like I mentioned a little bit earlier, Mark, we now have a program going out there where we'll really be engaging with stakeholders to see how our reputation and not only our strengths, but also opportunities for us to kind of close the gap where we have our brand positioning out there, but how are we playing? How are we being seen by the multiple stakeholders going, going out there? So we we have a program in place over the next two to three years that we're really going to be honing uh, in on that. The other thing I would say too, is we're really looking at strategic partnerships more so going forward than maybe in the past is as well. And there's a lot of benefit of that from a brand standpoint. So obviously a win-win, uh, the halo effect for both sides. Um, and so we need to be really thoughtful in who we partner with and, and those kind of things. But I think you'll see more initiatives like that versus just cSL, you know, carrying all the water itself and and that also carries over into our r and d. We'll do more partnerships that way and in, in those kind of things. But I think you also you'll also see that over on the brand. so, you know, we're always talking, we're always listening. Um, and so stay tuned more for an, uh, maybe some
0: upcoming partnerships. Are you talking, talking about um business development area, kind of like MA type of partnerships or sort of more on the brand side?
3: More, well, actually both, actually mm-hmm. both. So, so, you know, we spend well over a billion in R&D uh, U.S. Uh, every year. And you really wanna use those dollars wisely. And so we're growing at an incredible rate, but, and the world is moving so quickly. And so sometimes it makes sense to partner with others to be able to bring the uh, the medicine to marker in a more accelerated way. Uh, and then on the brand side, you know, I, I've been receiving a lot of calls, a lot of interest over the last uh, year or so as we've done the rebranding and people are finally noticing CSL. Uh, and so we're really starting to talk with folks more so than maybe in the past. And, you know, a lot of people say, well, you know, you've been around for 100 years. How come I haven't heard about you? And it's really twofold. One is um, we trade on the Australian Stock Exchange, right? So that's halfway around the world. <laughs> and so we, we, are, we are the, the largest uh, biotech company uh, in Australia. We are the largest healthcare company in Australia. Number three, I think, overall uh, in Australia. The second is our largest business is focused in rare and serious diseases like immune deficiencies and bleeding disorders. And so we're not, we don't have a large group of patients. Uh, It's more focused there. But now that we've done the rebranding and now that we have, you know, really tried to be much more I would say thoughtful and really driving out there. You're starting to see the fruits of our labor that we started eight years ago, especially in the last three or four years uh, or so.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. Hemophilia strikes only about 30 to 33,000 males. For instance, I remember reading right. um, and uh, you know, women are affected to a lesser degree. So you're talking right. about smaller patient populations, uh, obviously not mass market, you know, patient populations. So that's, yeah. Uh, contributes to the smaller uh, kind of uh, uh, or lesser known aspect of the company.
3: Yeah, I'll tell you one thing. We do know is the brand loyalty is very high for us, and and here's one of the reasons why is when you have a rare disease, it takes six, seven, eight years, maybe nine, ten years to be accurately diagnosed. And so what happens is people feel empowered, like they're not feeling well, and so they'll go online and and really, really look for content. And as we know, there's good content and not so good content out there. And so one of the things when we started this early on, when we did our research with patients and patient groups is they were really looking for a credible organization to provide content on the diseases, how to live a full life and those kind of things. And one of the things we saw, there was a gap there. And so every day we publish a fresh piece of content that's leveraged across our channels every day to help people live a more meaningful life. And it's not always content about us, but it's from us as a leader in this space. And I'll give you a great example. We now have over 500,000 followers on Facebook after just four years. And so content is still still king. I don't care what anybody says. Uh, We strive to be a publishing powerhouse and be digitally centric. And so it's really paid off.
0: Great. Yeah, you mentioned that uh, publishing was one of your main uh, goals and uh, reassuring to hear your comments about uh, the the value of content. Great. Uh, Well, Anthony, I'm sure our listeners are going to really enjoy uh, hearing hearing you and hearing your uh, insider take uh, on the rebrand. And congrats on all the success you've had with the brand value uh, increase. Um, Thank you again for joining us.
3: Mark, thanks for having me. Real pleasure and uh, look forward to the next time.
0: Health Policy Update with Lesha Bouchak.
1: The U.S. government is headed towards a shutdown within days, leaving various public health programs up in the air when it comes to funding. Congress isn't on the path of finding a solution anytime soon, as Democrats in the Senate are planning to vote on a bipartisan stopgap funding bill, while Republicans in the House push four bills with conservative goals forward, with no consensus to avoid the shutdown. Still, the Senate Health, Education, Labor and Pensions, or HELP Committee, last week passed a bipartisan bill that tries to address at least one of those health funding cliffs the federal fund for community health centers led by senators bernie sanders and roger marshall the bill would reauthorize the community health center fund and invest 26 billion dollars into primary health care and the workforce shortage in particular it would provide 5.8 billion dollars to community health centers and 3 billion dollars for them to expand dental and mental health care services In a statement, Sanders referred to the quote, broken health care system in the U.S. and that the bill was a lot more modest than what he had hoped for. Still, he argued that the legislation will save substantial sums of money.
3: Investing in primary health care will keep people healthier and out of hospitals. Investing in community health centers will keep people out of emergency rooms, which cost 10 times more than going into a community health center.
1: But the bill has drawn opposition from Republican Senator Bill Cassidy, who raised concerns about how the legislation would be paid for. Some hospital groups also argued that some of the hospital cuts in the bill, such as eliminating facility fees for telehealth, would negatively impact them. Still, Sanders pressed that he would work with, quote, Senate leadership in the coming weeks to move this bill forward and ensure that millions more Americans can get the health care they deserve. I'm Lesha Bouchak, senior reporter at MMM. trending. trending,
0: And this is the part of the broadcast when we welcome Jack O'Brien
2: back to tell us what's trending in health care. Hey, Jack. Hey, Mark. We're going to start this episode with Emma Hemming-Willis in her interview on the Today Show Monday morning, where she said it's, quote, hard to know if her husband, Bruce Willis, is aware of his dementia. Emma spoke to host Hoda Kotb about her journey as a caregiver for Bruce since he was diagnosed with frontotemporal dementia, also known as FTD, which the family made public earlier this year.
1: You know, what I'm learning is that dementia is hard. It's hard on the person diagnosed. It's also hard on the family. Um, And that is no different for Bruce or myself or our girls. And when they say that this is a family disease, it really is.
2: That clip was courtesy of Today on NBC. She added that it is unclear if her husband is aware of his condition, saying, quote, it's hard to know. As listeners may recall, Willis was diagnosed with aphasia in the spring of 2022 before his condition progressed to FTD, the most common form of dementia for people under the age of 60, which affects between 50 to 60,000 people in the U.S. each year. It often takes an average of just over three and a half years to obtain an FTD diagnosis following the first symptoms. These signs of the disorder are usually memory loss, but also encompass changes to a person's personality, behavior, language, ability to live independently, and movement due to the parts of the brain affected by FTD. There is no cure or standard of care for the condition, with most patients requiring around the clock care from skilled healthcare professionals. And Mark, I want to throw it over to you because we were talking offline about just how dire this condition is and obviously how challenging it is, and that was what Emma Willis was highlighting in her interview on the caregivers, too. They're, they're not lost in this just as much as the patients are the focus.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I was going to uh, bring up that point, Jack, um, that, uh, you know, that's the oft overlooked impact on the caregivers um, for a disease uh, for which, you know, Bruce Willis has seemingly seemingly done just as much for as Michael J. Fox has done uh, for Parkinson's uh, that, uh, you know, it's still the, the, there's a lot more um, that needs to, that's still unknown about this disease. Um, The takeaway for me on that interview was I, I liked how Hoda kind of started off the interview with asking Bruce Willis's wife, you know, how are you doing to kind of put the exclamation mark on the fact that, you know, like you said, the the caregiver is is oftentimes uh, not the center of attention here, uh, but that she calls herself a care partner um, and that, you know, she really still considers herself, um, you know, a partner, which is a beautiful thing. And, and, you know, the, the need to celebrate the good things and the joy of life, despite, you know, what is a a really sort of uh, a desperate situation and a very bleak one, unfortunately uh, for Bruce Willis.
1: Yeah, we've talked a lot on this podcast, I think, about like celebrities and social media stars who have health issues and they end up speaking about it and sort of raising awareness or making other people feel less alone in what they're dealing with. And while it might not be Willis himself discussing it, the fact that, you know, as you've mentioned, his partner and caregiver um, is... Still raising awareness about this severe form of dementia, FTD. Um you know, I think when most people think of dementia, they think that most old people probably have a little bit of dementia. It's a pretty common thing, but um, you know cases of FTDs are, you know, as you said, very severe, and there is no cure for it. Um, so you know, anytime that a someone in in the public spot like like that can can sort of shed light on some of the caregiving issues, for example. Um, I think is is always helpful for, for people.
2: And, and just in the interest of transparency, as we were recording this, Emma had posted a picture of Bruce along with her and their daughters. And, you know, obviously he looks good. It's almost kind of the more of the heartbreaking thing that you think about too, where it's he looks good, but, you know, his... Association with reality and even control Over his body is the thing that's lacking Which for somebody that was you know the star Of the Die Hard franchise and Was in Pulp Fiction it's really something That's sad to see about but Again obviously if there's any sort Of silver lining to it it is raising uh, Greater awareness about FTD And the caregiver aspect too which I know we Had Richard Liu on the show about a month Or so ago talking about the role that caregivers Play in the healthcare journey in the patient Journey and that's just as much uh, uh, Important part to understand score as anything that we'll discuss on this show.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Great point about Richard Liu. I'd forgotten about that interview. everybody uh, for a, a really great documentary on uh, what it means to be a caregiver. That's a great one. And listen to that interview uh, that Jack did uh, earlier this year.
2: So this second story comes to us from the world of TikTok as Lesha has found another troubling trend. Nearly every one of us has lost sleep to snoring and people have gone to great lengths to be able to mitigate snoring, get a restful night's sleep. However, a recent trend on TikTok has taken aim at snoring through a sketching mechanism Taping your mouth shut to encourage nose breathing. An initial search for mouth taping on TikTok generates scores of videos with thousands and even sometimes millions of views. They showcase people asleep with their mouths taped using anything from painter's tape to scotch tape to a special brand known as hostage tape. Users claim anecdotally that mouth taping results in a lack of morning breath and morning dryness, leaving people energized after waking up. However, cutting through the mouth taping noise on the platform are a few voices of reason who have emerged to question the practice. Several physician influencers have made reaction videos to the practice outlining the reasons why people should not try the trend despite claims that it can prove one's health. TikToker Dr. Rizwan starts out one video by acknowledging the fact that nose breathing can, in fact, lead to improved oxygen intake. However, he notes that mouth taping is not the way to get there. Lesha, I want to bring you into this because you went through and saw a number of people trying a number of different ways to go about mouth taping. And all of them gave me that just immediate reaction of, no, don't do this.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you definitely get a visceral reaction of like, oh, why would you try to <laughs> like tape your mouth shut while you're sleeping? That looks scary. <laughs> um, but people on TikTok have gotten kind of obsessed with it. And they're, they're all kind of obsessed with this idea that mouth breathing is bad for you Um which, you know, when I read about this on the Cleveland Clinic uh, website, there, there's some benefits to breathing through your nose rather than mouth breathing, um, because your nose can better filter out allergens, pollution, things like that. Um, You know, your lungs and throat function better with moist air that's brought in through the nose, things like that. So there is some, you know, medical benefits, uh, according to some official uh, accounts, that nose breathing is better for you than mouth breathing. But the fact that people are taping their mouth shut doesn't have any clinical evidence of addressing, you know, some of the issues that might come with mouth breathing. Um, You know, most of the experts who have commented on this have said that there's literally nothing that taping your mouth shut is going to do that's going to be medically beneficial for you. If anything, there are some risks involved. If a person has an underlying health condition or they have an underlying breathing problem that they're not aware of or that they're not diagnosed with yet, Um, taping your mouth shut kind of, it shuts off your backup air supply, your backup oxygen supply. If something goes wrong with your nose breathing, for example. Um, So a lot of experts are kind of warning, don't do this, but still it's this obsession on TikTok where literally millions of people are watching these videos. And it's crazy. Like they one of the videos with like 3 million views. The guy was like, you know, I was kind of worried and kind of scared at first that I'd like suffocate during the night. But I woke up today and I felt great. There's no problem with it. And he was saying this totally unironically. And um, yeah, it's wild. <laughs>
2: the amount of times that I've gone to bed at night and then woken up with like a stuffy nose and the idea that you have taped off to your point, your backup oxygen supply would terrify, I would be terrified (laughs) of suffocating myself. Yes. Knowing my luck. And another thing too, that Lesha highlighted in the story that I thought was interesting was it's not only for sleeping. There was one person I saw in the video that ran eight miles.
1: Right. People are doing it during the day now and claiming that it's better for you when you exercise to breathe through your nose. And yeah, there was a girl who ran like eight miles with her mouth taped shut. Um, even though there's no evidence that this is good for you in any way.
2: I mean, it's beyond parody. Mark, please hop in here with with some <laughs> element of sanity. <laughs> well, one thing
0: I can sort of anecdotally say is that, uh, um, you know, breathing through one's nose uh, does not necessarily uh, completely cure snoring, uh, because as a <laughs> consider i consider someone who considers himself a lifelong nose breather i have been told that i snore a little bit so i'm sorry to burst the bubble of anybody that you know is under the impression that uh, it does but um uh, I, I like the you know thank goodness for patient advocacy organizations because just like with the story you brought up earlier with Bruce Willis where they had the president of the AFTD there to kind of dispel some myths and and, and illuminate you know the disease for those who are not in the know here you have you know Lesha quotes the American Academy of Sleep Medicine um, saying that uh, you know kind of reminding people that uh, it's essential to approach sleep with evidence based strategies that, that work um, and there could really be a dangerous downside as you as you both pointed out. Um, that this could really impair breathing instead of improving it. So um, better to uh, you know seek out uh, some really proven strategies here before trying something that could actually have a big downside. Mm-hmm. Also, what about pulling the tape off in the morning?
2: Oh, yeah. No, there were videos of people like it's <laughs> I mean, some of these tapes were like real deal. And I'd never heard of this hostage tape before, mm-hmm. but that was like the big thing that people yeah. have used because it keeps it shut, but then you can peel it off. Mm-hmm. I don't know. You know that people are out there experimenting (laughs) with duct tape or something like that, doing whatever to their face. Hopefully it doesn't pull the skin off with it, right? Yeah, (laughs) that's the main concern. And for our final story, to borrow a line from Charlemagne the God on The Breakfast Club, I think we have our donkey of the day or villain of the week, however you want to put it. An amateur poker player lied about having terminal colon cancer in order to raise funds to get into the World Series of Poker main event and apologized for lying, saying, quote, What I did was wrong. Rob Mercer, a 37-year-old from California, originated the lie in June and reportedly raised between $30,000 to $50,000, including the $10,000 he needed to buy into the World Series of Poker main event in July in Las Vegas. One donation he received was from another chronically ill poker player who staked into the tournament through private donations. He gave $2,500 to Mercer's cause. The Las Vegas Review Journal reported that several other poker players became suspicious of Mercer when he provided vague responses to questions about terminal illnesses, when he provided vague responses to questions about his terminal illness, and didn't provide proof of diagnosis. He eventually admitted to the outlet it was all a fib. Quote, I did lie about having colon cancer. I don't have colon cancer. I used that to cover my situation. What I did was wrong. I shouldn't have told people I have colon cancer. I did that as a spur-of-the-moment thing when someone asked me what kind of cancer I had. Now, Mark, I know that in our line of work, we cover a lot of awareness campaigns, a lot of them that coincide with cancer. There's you know, a lot of questions and issues that people have with the GoFundMe nature of the healthcare system in America, and this seems to be that kind of perfect you know, intersection of a bad actor abusing the system, profiting off of it for their own means, and really setting back other efforts that people have to raise awareness and raise funds for those in need when they get sick with diseases like this.
0: Yeah, I, I, I fear the impact, the blowback that this will have for other people trying to raise money. That's a really good point, Jack. Um, but, um, you know, I was also impressed with the uh, honor among the poker community. You know, they really look out for their own. Um, but, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. this could for sure, you know, anytime you have a bad actor like that, um, they, they do more harm than good uh, in terms of, you know, making other people nervous before, uh, you know, supporting others who could truly be in need. Uh, but it's not necessarily a bad thing to, you know, Use these as uh, le- learning moments in terms of uh, you know these GoFundMe appeals, uh, and to try, try to do a little background research, you know, before uh, you know clicking that uh, support button.
1: Yeah, I asked you this before, but my, but my question is, uh, you know, did, did he have to pay the money back that he received, or was he able to just keep it?
2: Yeah, what we've seen from what he told the Las Vegas Review Journal is that he does believe that he has cancer. Which again, this guy I think has already kind of lost the credibility argument of the whole discussion, but he says that he does have breast cancer. Again, take that with a grain of salt. And so he has no intention of returning the money that he obtained through GoFundMe, which I think raises a whole nother aspect of the conversation where it's like, okay, you're sitting on five figures that you raised from people that really thought that you were sick and were trying to do a good thing by you. And now you're not going to return the money. But I don't know if there's any obligation on him to do so. I don't know. It's it's a tricky situation to kind of go through, don't you think?
1: Right. I mean, you know, as you mentioned, it's it's a sign that this GoFundMe healthcare model in the U.S. Uh, has its pitfalls um, for a variety of reasons, and hopefully, this you know this event with this guy won't negatively impact patients who actually do need uh, to set up GoFundMe accounts in the future.
2: Yeah, I think it's an issue that spans not only through healthcare but through charity and other aspects, too, is that you are relying on the the good nature of people. And if people abuse that, obviously, they're going to be more tentative to, you know, reach for their their pocketbook and lend something or support a cause that they believe in. Absolutely. And he, he does say, you know, he's
0: sorry there. Uh, and he does, as you point out, have have another form of cancer. We we think, you know, he claims he does seem remorseful, but uh his credibility took a shot there. So the truth will come out eventually. Uh, but in the meantime, we hope that doesn't affect people who are considering supporting people with cancer or other terminal illnesses. Thanks for joining us in this week's episode of the m M&M Podcast. Be sure to listen to next week's episode when I'll be joined by a special guest from our upcoming MMM Awards. That's it for this week. The MMM Podcast is produced by Bill Fitzpatrick, Gordon Failer, Lesha Bushak, and Jack O'Brien. Our theme music is by Sizzy M. Sohn. Rate, review, and follow every episode wherever you listen to podcasts. New episodes out every week. And be sure to check out our website, mmm-online.com, for the top news stories and pharma marketing.